This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Pride Month is coming to a close, and for the panel discussion this week, Charaday Howard, Antoinette Lee, and I gather for a group discussion. First, we sit down with Democratic Pennsylvania State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta and Kendall Stevens, who's on the board of directors for the William Way Community Center, and she's also facilitator of the trans support group Transway. For our newsmaker this week, Chris Bartlett, executive director of the William Way Center, is a tireless LGBTQ activist who's working to preserve the memories of Philadelphians lost to HIV AIDS. Finally, Sharaday Howard talks with a legendary Philly drag queen. Now that's a half hour you don't want to miss, and it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly and our monthly group discussion. I'm Raquel Williams. This week we celebrate Pride Month, and as we do so, we must also acknowledge the work ahead that needs to be done to further equality for all and the people who are doing that work. Local LGBTQ communities have been fighting for protective legislation for decades. And today we welcome Malcolm Kenyatta, a Democratic Pennsylvania state representative for the 181st District, who has been an out and proud advocate since taking his seat in 2019. Hi, I'm Antoinette Lee, and we also welcome Kendall Stevens, who serves alongside our own Sheridan Howard on the board of directors at the William Way Community Center. Stevens is also the facilitator of the trans support group Transway at the Community Center and is also a public health student at Temple University. And I'm Sharaday Howard. Our guests join us today in conversations addressing the steps need to be taken legislatively, not just here in Philadelphia, but in the state and across the country, to better protect and lift up the LGBTQ communities. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Representative Kenyatta and Ms. Stevens. Malcolm, if you would, tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are with regard to policies and legislation in Philadelphia and how what we've done here in Philadelphia can be used as a model across the state and across the country. Yeah, you know, the the real um, frustrating part when we think about protections for LGBTQ folks, um, be it, you know, hate crime legislation um, to make sure some of these, you know, gruesome and unfortunately recurring instances of violence, particularly against trans women of color. These ideas of basic non-discrimination protections, the ability to not be thrown out of a hotel because of who you are or, or lose your housing or lose your employment because you put up a picture of your, of your loved one. In Pennsylvania, we have this real patchwork approach. You are either protected or you are not. Now, the good news is that here in Philadelphia, we do have one of the strongest local ordinances in terms of protecting the LGBTQ community than any other municipality in Pennsylvania and frankly across the across the country. 
But that's not good enough because as we know, people's entire lives is not just spent in one county in the in the state. We think about people who go back and forth every day to work in a different county or who come in to work in Philadelphia but go back home to a county where they're where they're not protected. I mean, it was not until two weeks ago that the House just voted to remove same-sex interactions from the crimes code. I mean, homosexuality is still technically um, in our crimes code. And so we're waiting for the Senate to take that bill up, hopefully, and the governor to sign it. And so we have a lot of work to do, but Philadelphia is absolutely, you know, a model um, for what I'd hope to see at the state level at some point and around the country. That's interesting that you talk about uh, that crimes code and that word. You know, I was saying that, you know, it's 2022. How, are we, how do we still have language like this in our laws, uh, like uh, like the ones that, uh, you know, homosexuality being erased from the crimes code? So it's a pretty much a long time coming, I would say. That's That's right. And believe it or not, you know, we got unanimous support for that. And that was not um, that was not a guaranteed thing <laughs> we were looking at. Mm-hmm you know, 20 or 30 members voting, voting against it. But we had, you know, a serious debate on the floor and ended up with a unanimous vote. And so I hope the PA Senate does the same thing. And, and so, Kendall, I'd love to bring you into the conversation now. Um, what are some gaps in policy that you believe need to be addressed ASAP? So uh, right now I'm looking at um, hate crime legislation as it stands now, which does not include the LGBTQIA plus community as a protected class. That's something that is really important right now. People, the American people, they look at laws, they look at bills um, as a gauge of how to behave, how to how to act, how to think. And uh, when you have a piece of legislation such as hate crime um, that says that if you are a part of the lesbian, gay, or trans community and you are um, targeted for an attack, an assault. Um, any sort of injury um, or, or death on a, on a court of someone targeting for uh, your identities in that matter, that sends out a pretty clear message uh, that you are not considered to be on the same level as other people who are protected, right? You are uh, definitely considered someone who's second class and someone who's considered to be on the fringes of society. And unfortunately, when you are placed in those margins, you fall in between them. You fall through them. And that's what's happening right now. So people are gripped with fear, especially when you are someone who is of color, uh, a BIPOC individual um, who is part of the LGBTQIA plus experience and living in certain neighborhoods um, where it is more high risk uh, for you to express your gender identity or your sexuality openly, like we all should. We should be able to to be all who we are uh, safely in our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that when we're talking about social order and status quo and how that's being maintained and how that's being enforced in our communities, we're talking about your life being put at risk when you don't have bills to protect you. I would say discourage people from causing you harm and targeting you in some way as a result of your injuries, of result of your identities, rather, sorry. So um, that's something that really concerns me. I know I spoke um, at the Senate Majority Policy Committee hearing about two years ago. I pleaded uh, for the Republicans to do something to, to help pass this bill to include um, LGBTQ plus folks 
as a protected class under that statute. And uh, my, my pleas uh, fell on deaf ears. Mm. Now, but, you've been touched by this personally. I have. Uh, unfortunately, I am a, a victim and survivor of a terrible hate crime that happened almost two years ago where people entered my home, a hateful mob of transphobes. They burst into my home. I had small children inside and, and mm. beat me senseless. And oh uh, when law enforcement came um, after I called 911, um, I was laughed, um, laughed off. Um, no one seemed to really take me seriously. The people who uh, committed this crime against me were still there. There were only a few doors away. And the responding police officers told me to go downtown and file a private complaint because this was a civil matter as I was bleeding out onto the pavement, um, advocating for myself. Uh, this wouldn't have happened to a white woman um, who was cisgendered in the same circumstance. But because I am Black and because I am uh, trans and because I live um, under the poverty line and in a high-risk, high-crime neighborhood, it didn't really matter. And I remember the perpetrators, literally a few doors down, saying, why do y'all care? That's a man anyway. Wow. I remember that. And and I remember those police officers walking away. And my, keep in mind, living in an environment where if you even speak to the police, even after a beating, um, even after being a victim of a crime, that's called snitching. That can put you into um, a further risk. So you're, now I'm in a different category where not only um, am I now living in the intersection of black poverty and also too of trans now also too i have now crossed the boundary i broke the code and now also have snitched so now i am definitely public enemy number one so you know there was harassment there were bullets that were left in my mailbox uh people would knock on my door uh, in the middle of the night so i was gripped in fear you didn't let that stop you. You didn't let that quiet your sense of duty to the community because you knew that if you stood up for yourself, you were standing up for all of the people behind and beside you. Why was that so important to you? Yeah, it, it was. Um, here's the thing. I could have chose to cower um, into a corner, into a fetal position and and let that situation destroy me. But I've been attacked before. And what happens is you start to build these um, emotional and psychological calluses um, that allow you to endure. That's the resilience um, that so many of us have. But also, too, I'm prideful. So we're talking about Pride Month, and that is an example of what pride is. It's an internal process first and something that is um, imbued within us um, due to that fighting spirit that we have, due to our willingness to keep pushing, keep moving, keep fighting, uh, despite the fact that all the odds may be against us, mm. despite the fact that the people who are, are hurting you, who are harming you, are the same people who need to be more aware and more educated as to how they are oppressing you. And oftentimes what I notice is that the people who are oppressing me because of my identifiers are mm -hmm. often very oppressed themselves in some kind of way. Right. So you have to know how oppression works and operates. You have to know how it thrives. And very often people are unable or unwilling to look beyond their own oppression to see how they are, first of all, oppressing you, but also seeing how oppressive forces are operating within your life. And if we had that capacity to see beyond our, our own issues, we can see the complexities of the challenges that people go through and how we may be actively participating in someone's suffering.
Is there really yeah. anything else to, to say? <laughs> um, Kendall, thank you just for, for so powerfully, um, you know, sharing your story. I had to mute myself. I was getting a little bit, you know, you know, emotional. And, and this is the real life consequence of our inaction in, in Harrisburg, the real life consequence. And I have this bill called Data for LGBTQ Lives for us to do a better job just around data collection to understand how many Pennsylvanians um, are in the LGBTQ plus community mm -hmm. because we're in the budget process right now. And I remind people all the time that when we allocate money or resources, we do it almost always through formulas. Those formulas are created using government-backed data. And we don't right now, outside of, you know, surveys that have been done by outside nonprofits and organizations, we don't have a really good understanding of how many Kendall Stevens are out there who have been victims, who haven't spoken up. How many people are we on a daily basis leaving at greater risk because we refuse to, to act. And so, you know, in addition to passing this needed legislation, it's also really critical that folks are out of the shadows and that they count, right, in, in, every, in every way, metaphorically and, and literally, that we are counting these folks and that we have a better understanding of people who sit in the intersections that Kendall and I um, sit at. But Kendall, you have made me very emotional um, today. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, being attacked. She was talking about, Kendall, you were talking about enduring attacks. You've endured attacks before. And being attacked, that shouldn't be a, a rite of passage for someone who uh, is transgender. What is the pushback, Malcolm Kenyatta? What is the pushback and the hesitancy and the resistance to getting this bill or any measure like this that would add LGBTQ as a protected class? You know, what's really frustrating is... There is no substantive pushback. There is no argument that is grounded in anything real that we can debate. We have folks who, on one hand, are are just are just cowards, frankly, um, because they are afraid that um, standing up for the inalienable rights of everybody really of everybody, that that puts them at risk possibly of, you know, getting a primary opponent or puts them, you know, um, at a level of discomfort within their caucus because there might be louder voices who don't want to pass these protections. And so the folks who know better, who know that this is the right thing to do, and who frankly know that it's what their constituents want them to do, they don't act, they don't speak up. I mean, I remember at the height of the pandemic um, when you know, we were going into work, Pennsylvania was the busiest legislature in the entire country. At the height of the pandemic, we were still figuring out what was going on, but they were calling us up to session to you know, pass bills to like open amusement parks was one of the bills, to open the zoos, right? During the height of this, they wanted to just reopen everything when people were, you know, dying massive um, numbers. And so one of the things that I kept doing <laughs> in people in my caucuses, we said, OK, if you want to open it up, we're going to keep amending these bills to try to get you on the record as it relates to non-discrimination. And so, yes, you're going to open it back up, but also you have to make sure that when you do open it back up, that all the different things that are in the LGBTQ civil rights bill or non-discrim bill, um, that that's in there as well. My amendment on one of those bills got 100 votes, 
100 votes. You need 102 votes to, 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 to pass a bill, 100 votes. And we wanted to have this vote come up again. And they came up with a procedural you know, reason for why they weren't going to have this vote you know, come up again. And so we had, you know, basically a, a, a dozen or so Republicans who did the right things. And you can just watch on the floor as leadership whips votes, which, you know, what they call it. So somebody may vote and then you'll have a leader from the caucus come and talk to them and whisper in their ear and say, maybe you don't want to vote this way for whatever reason. And you saw people changing their votes on the floor. And so we had the votes to pass this, if not for the obstruction and the cowardice of a small group of people who thinks it benefits them politically to allow folks like Kendall and others to be at greater risk. And that really is disgusting and disgraceful to me. So one of the the hot button issues that we've recently heard about um, is the PA Senate uh, passing a bill against trans girls playing uh, girls sports. How does this play into that conversation and why is this important? I'll just say very, very quickly. So that bill did pass and thank God the governor, it passed in the house as well. And I know the governor will will veto um, that legislation. Um, It was sad to see one Democrat um, vote for that, that bill, Senator Bascola and the Senate education committee just passed the Pennsylvania version of the don't say gay bill. And so for folks who are going to be listening to this, just understand what's happening in Florida. It's not just limited to Florida and Texas. This is coming here right now. And I have no doubt that that bill will be voted on before um, June is finished. Can you explain what the Don't Say Gay bill is and how that affects us directly? It is suggesting that kids sixth grade under that there can be no talk of, you know, um, same sex, of trans, of gender identity. And anybody who is an educator understands that there are ways that you appropriately talk to children about sex. And at the age of, you know, kindergarten, first grade, we're just talking about good touch, bad touch. Nobody is talking to kids about the act, you know, of sex across the board. But what this does do is create a real chilling effect for same-sex parents, for non-binary caregivers? Are their kids not allowed to talk about their two moms or or their two dads or their two loved ones who take care of them? Are they not allowed to talk about that in school? Are they not allowed to talk about that, you know, family vacation that they took? This really is um, a bill that creates a problem that doesn't exist. There are zero instances, recorded instances that I am aware of, of students at any you know level being given non-age appropriate um, lessons about sex. LGBTQ folks, our entire existence is not about sex. And so this idea that us just existing is inherently sexual um, is deeply problematic because you can watch a Disney movie, a Pixar movie, and there is, or just you know, casually, you hear all the time adults say to um, little boys and little girls, is that your boyfriend? Is that your girlfriend at ages that are deeply inappropriate? And so often it is heterosexual folks who are sexualizing things in ways that LGBTQ folks are not. Kendall, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm very concerned. I'm concerned about what this means. Um, We're looking at super systems of oppression, most notably trans massage noir, which is anti-Blackness, misogyny, uh, racism and sexism all converging um, into one super system of oppression that is affecting 
uh, people who look like me, who walk in my shoes. And really what's happening is this is bullying. This is a way to uh, condemn us and legislate us out of existence. Representation is very important. We know the power of it. When representation is properly implemented, uh, it can change minds. Um, It can be very transformational. And moving a person from misunderstanding, mistrust, distrust to um, awareness and understanding and acceptance. Um, I go to Temple University. I'm the face of Temple University. Love walking in the footsteps of uh, Malcolm Kenyatta for sure. <laughs> no matter where I go, um, I hear nothing but good things. Um, I take a lot of uh, the tests that he took um, years ago. So it's great to be in this uh, position to be able to represent um, not just trans people, but also people who are non-binary and gender non-conforming and the entire LGB uh, communities as well, uh, because we're seeing different representation. We're seeing positive and healthy depictions of what someone like like me looks like. We're seeing another side of us, a side of us who um, are an educated people, a side of us who are um, very much interested in contributing to society. And on my campus, is this really interesting? People come up to me, I can't go five feet. I cannot go five feet without someone saying, I'm so proud of you. I'm so, you know, glad that we have someone like you on campus. You know, I want to learn more about you. Can you speak to my sorority? Can you speak to my fraternity? You know, can you speak here? Can you speak there? We want to know more. Please educate us. But when you cut that out of the education system, then what you're, what you're really saying is that um, you don't exist that whatever's happening with you is a fantasy and we're going to completely invalidate your experiences and we're going to do that by preventing people from being educated because we know that once people are educated you can't unknow what you know but we can always always unlearn what we know when it's toxic and we can replace that with something that is truth something that is affirming for all people so we know the power of that and i think what's happening now is that by these bills saying oh don't say gay don't say trans don't say lesbian don't say lgbtqia plus as a whole as a polyglot communities what we're saying is that you don't matter and we're going to make sure that people don't know the truth of the glory of who you are um, and, and it's very scary and frightening because now we're going back into the dark ages of this very right misunderstanding that does breed fear, it does breed hate, it does breed violence and destruction and anarchy. And we're a civilized society. We should be the ones setting the tone that other nations should be following. And we're behind right now, going into a space and a place where um, people are fearing for their very lives. Now you're seeing homelessness, you're seeing suicidal ideation, people taking their lives and fearing for their lives on a daily basis, all because we're not able to educate people in this next generation of how to love each other and build community through the machinations of understanding and awareness. Yeah. And Kendall, uh, speaking of education, I wonder if there are some some books that you might share. Uh, we've also heard a lot of talk about people suppressing books. Um, what are some books that, I, that can help breed that awareness, understanding, and representation well, first of all, we start with bell hooks, number one. Always still uh, bell hooks, Black feminists, who really breaks down um, what gender really is. And it's very important that we talk about womanism because we're talking about uh, BIPOC people, the BIPOC experience, which, which often gets um, excluded from a feminist frame. But I can definitely add some in the chat. I know so many books. I can go on, <laughs> on, and on, on. <laughs> Malcolm, you had something to add? Please. Ain't I a Woman is, you know, just one of those formative, um, you know, 
books that I think everybody should should read. I also think um, All Boys Aren't Blue um, by George Johnson is a book that people should read. That is one of the books that you are seeing um, being taken out of libraries all across the country. And, and that is what's really been interesting about this moment as well, because they aren't just trying to ban books willy-nilly, though there are some really egregious examples. Um, there was a district in York, Pennsylvania, and thank God for these incredible young people who spoke out. I got to meet with them and be inspired by them. They spoke out, you know, to walkouts um, at school, and ultimately the school board had to reverse it. But the school board certainly was doing some outlandish things like trying to ban Elmo and, and Big Bird from school. But additionally, if you look at the books that they were trying to take out of the libraries and say these were books that should not be read, I would say about 70% of those books were either written by people of color, by Black women, and a large majority of them by Black queer individuals. And so that erasure is a big part of the strategy. And before I was talking with you all today, I was doing an interview with CBS um, 21 out in central Pennsylvania talking about this don't say gay bill. And the you know host says to me, well, you know, why won't Democrats just negotiate? Why do I need to negotiate with a hateful, ridiculous idea? And that has been, I think, a part of this, this, this conversation and this frame that has been deeply damaging to this discourse, that somebody can say something outlandish, and now everyone else has to find a middle ground of their outlandish, you know, statement. They are trying to you know, expand the Overton window on what is acceptable. And of course, they always start with folks who are on the margins. And, you know, forgetting exactly right now, I'm just blanking on me, but somebody smart who's listening will remember the exact president um, who said that the greatness of a nation can always be measured in how you treat people in the dawn of their lives, in the dusks of their lives, and in the shadows. And right now we see that in lieu of a real comprehensive, thoughtful policy agenda. You see every week, my Republican colleagues throw out just something completely random and hate-filled. You know, Texas doesn't want to ban assault weapons after 19 kids are, are, are murdered, but yet you see them rushing to pass a bill to ban drag queens. I mean, it is just ridiculous. And it is a part of a strategy to further marginalize groups that they already see as easy targets. But I think what they don't understand is that you can't put the lid back on these things. These young people give me so much hope. I was the keynote speaker with uh, Karen Bass um, in, in D.C. yesterday for her organization, National Foster Youth Institute. And I'm talking to these young people who've experienced some of the toughest circumstances that any young person could go through. And they are hungry for knowledge. They were hungry to understand other people's, you know, experiences. They were hungry to understand how they could play a role in making this country what it actually should be free, fair for everybody. So this opposition that we're seeing is not because the voices of folks like Kendall and so many others are not being heard. The opposition we're seeing is, in fact, because they are being hurt, because places like Philadelphia, you know, have passed these expansive protections because shows like, you know, RuPaul and artists like Little Nas X and all these people are very much within the mainstream. And that is a great threat 
to the patriarchy and to the power that they feel like they're seeing slip away. So they're seeing this backlash. This is what we're seeing, clearly. And the backlash is always aimed at the next generation. So let's talk about what you would say to that next generation. What do you say during Pride Month to these kids who are looking up to you and looking for a place to be? I would say never give up hope. I would say keep your pride alive. Your pride is your jet fuel. It is the lifeblood that will keep you going through the dark times. There are dark times ahead that you do exist, that you do matter, uh, despite the fact that, but just know that you've been fighting this fight for a while. And pride definitely started as a riot. But I will always say that when it ends, and it will, and it will end with us as a collective, as a collective, allies included, unified, fighting toward the same goal, educating along the way to bring forth and usher in an era where we are living in a civilized society where we care for each other, that we're kind to each other, and we will be there. And, and, but know this, know that you have immediate family already within the LGBTQIA plus communities. And we're here to answer any questions, to uh, provide any support, but also remember always, always to continue to leverage your safety with your visibility because we want you to be safe. We want you to always be safe because we're, we're living in uncertain times. And I don't want anyone to fall uh, victim or, or prey to any oppressive forces that may make you feel like taking your life, make you feel like you're less than, make you feel like you're insignificant because you're not. You're beautiful. We didn't just pop up out of nowhere. We've been around for millennia. So yeah. I want people to understand that too, is that this is nothing that just is not new, you know? So understand that you have a family that's been around for a long time. We have fought a lot of battles. Philadelphia is one of those places um, that is known for our advocacy, known for us investing in attendance of protest policy and politics. We raise awareness by protesting. We try to influence policy by holding politicians accountable. And when they do not um, show accountability to the state of the human condition, we punish them at the polls. So please make sure you exercise your right to vote. Uh, make sure that you hold your allies accountable, uh, your co-conspirators accountable, so that you're not carrying all the heavy lifting and know that you are loved. You are wanted. We've got your back. Amen. Namaste. (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm Kenyatta. Final thoughts? Yeah, I I will say say two things that I always, always say to, to, to young people. The first is that your bravery is so contagious. And bravery is also a renewable resource. Um, because there are moments when you're not brave, where somebody else's courage in standing up and being who they are authentically, just walking and existing in their truth, gives you that courage to go on. And then there is also somebody on the other hand who's waiting for you, who also needs to be inspired to see you going on in the face of what look like insurmountable odds. And the second thing that I've been saying to everybody, but would particularly say to young people, because this these are times that are incredibly dark, especially with, you know, decisions we see coming out of the, the, the Supreme Court and will continue to, to, to see over the coming days. Our joy is just as important of a tool in our resistance and our freedom as anything else. You can't talk about any movement 
that has made structural change in this country and not also talk about the agents of joy creation and of culture and faith leaders who were also a part of that movement, not just a part, an integral part. You don't have, you know, the enslaved folks surviving and then ultimately, you know, ending um, their enslavement without those, those, those freedom songs and those Negro spirituals. You don't have the queer communities surviving um, the beginning parts of the gay liberation movement and the, you know, AIDS epidemic and all the other things without house music and without, you know, the ballroom scene and without all these other things that gave us outlets and opportunity to know that a new day is possible. But the final thing about joy and why joy is so tactical and necessary is it is a reminder to folks that the world we are building, the world that we want to see and that we're going to do the work to build and make real for us, that is a happy place. <laughs> a world where no matter who you are, who you love, who you worship or choose not to, where you are just given every opportunity and chance, that is not a sad world. That is a beautiful, exciting world. And we have to show people that joy because the folks who are opponents to the progress that we need to make and who are opponents to the progress that we have made, one of the things that they want us to do more than anything else is to give up. Because if you have an opponent who just lays down their arms, that's a lot easier than somebody you have to fight every step of the way. And so, you know, as Queen B has said and has told us all, you will not break our soul. You can't do somebody it. Somebody cue the and song. We <laughs> Thank you so much. We will aspire to joy. Thank you for joining us, Kendall. Thank you for joining us, Malcolm. Thank you. Thank you so much. As we continue our discussion about Pride Month, we now welcome Chris Bartlett, Executive Director of the William Way Community Center. The center and its John J. Wilcox Jr. Archives is partnering with artists, activists, and community leaders to implement Remembrance, an alternative multidisciplinary memorial to Philadelphians and the HIV-AIDS crisis. So I'm just going to just flat out ask you, uh, the Remembrance Tributes, tell us what they are and why they're so important. Yeah, so I'm 57 years old and I'm a Philadelphia native. I grew up in the midst of the AIDS epidemic in the late 80s and 90s. I had many friends who passed away. And until we had good medications in 95, this happened all the time. And it struck me that, you know, we hadn't done a good job of remembering all these men and women who'd passed. And I learned from Jewish tradition that the Jews said after the Holocaust, they would not let a single Jew who was murdered in the Holocaust be forgotten. And they documented all those names. And I thought, we didn't really do that with gay men and other folks who died. We didn't remember them. And like there's incredible people like Willie Smith, who is a black gay uh, clothes designer. Like, look, Google him. Like, he's an incredible <laughs> Philadelphian who died of AIDS. And probably a lot of people don't know who Willie Smith was. Um, and, you know, I could give a lot of other names, but I became, became inspired to remember these names. And it's in part, like, I believe in ancestors and that when people become ancestors, you want to keep them involved in the community. So just because they're not on this physical plane, if you do a good job in a community, you remember the stories, the traditions, the lessons they taught you. But it's hard work, especially if it's like just your neighbor down the block or the woman who ran the corner store uh, or a religious figure who wasn't really out. You know, it's harder to figure out how to remember these people in a way that's respectful 
to their involvements in their neighborhoods and communities. So early on, I did a, what, what I called a gay history wiki, which was just to document all these names online. And I found over a thousand, it's probably more than 8,000 who died of AIDS in Philly, which is a huge number when you think about it. not just gay men, but all folks. So in the course of it, I met a funeral home operator. He did all of the early funerals for people with AIDS. And he did everyone, black, white, Jewish, gay, Muslim. He didn't care because a lot of the other funeral homes wouldn't do funerals. They were afraid to touch the bodies because they thought they would get infected. And so he did all these early funerals. I was super inspired by that. And as such, he built trust in all these communities around the city. And one of the stories he told me that's most powerful is that he met a woman who we've interviewed, Kathy Desmond, and she found an organization for um, young orphans. So the parents had died of AIDS uh, and the kids, you know, to be direct, no one wanted to adopt these kids because they had HIV. So it was really hard to adopt them out. But Kathy discovered that Amish families would adopt them of all things. So these Amish families are adopting these largely black kids and he would do the funerals. And again, he was really committed to doing a beautiful funeral. So in the funeral home would be the Amish family and the black family and like the, the cultural interaction of that. And Kathy's story is really interesting because she fell in love with one of the babies. Kathy's a lesbian and she fell in love with one of the babies, but she's a very politically sensitive person. She says, I don't know if I, as a white lesbian, know how to raise a black baby or if it's even appropriate. She had these discussions with her friends and they were like, Kathy, nobody wants to adopt these babies. Just just adopt the baby. Give him some love for as long as you can. So she went to her employees and said, I want to adopt the baby. And they said, you can't. You work here. And she said, all right, I quit. And they were like, oh, no. Oh, no, don't quit. You know, because she was too much a valuable part of the staff. So she adopted this baby and miraculously the baby survived. So the baby is now an adult and the baby has his own children. She realized the mother was, had passed away, but the father was still alive. And she realized that the father probably had HIV himself. And so she had to call on the dad and because the dad, she wanted to make sure the dad was engaged with his son. And so they had holidays together and all this sorts of stuff, but she had to have this difficult conversation. You might be HIV positive and Sure enough, the father was HIV positive and, you know, passed away at some point. So all of this grief, right, and, and all the trauma in the fabric of communities, Black communities, Amish communities, queer communities, all of this trauma. And one of my insights is like one of the only ways you can rebuild the fabric of these communities is to make sure that proper grieving happens. And you can't do proper grieving if you don't know the names of the people who died. So that's thing one. And then thing two is, what does it mean to give a culturally respectful grieving for the person who died and involve all the right people and deal with whatever conflicts arise? Maybe they have shame that the kid or the family member died of HIV. How do you deal with that? And so there there was this whole network of people uh, who were culturally sensitive, and they formed this network where they would call each other up. I got someone in the hospital. He's probably going to pass in a week. Can we get him ready for a funeral? Uh, you know, can we get a social worker to begin conversation with the family? And so this informal network developed. And and so as I began to get all these stories, you can imagine I was super inspired, like, wow, you know, all these people just stepped up. They didn't have to. And it was terrifying. It was times when people literally lost jobs and families over HIV, but they stepped up in these really brave ways. And so, you know, we went to Pew uh, to seek funding to tell the story. 
And so we ended up doing it with a play and Ayn Gordon wrote this beautiful play that features a gay man, a black nurse, and an elderly woman from uh, St. Luke and the Epiphany Church around the corner where a lot of the funerals happened. And the minister there was part of this network. So we wrote a play about that. Wahida Shabazz L, who's a, a Muslim woman living with HIV, who lives in West Philly, did oral histories with uh, you know, 40 to 50 folks getting their, the names of the people they cared about. So we could collect the names. And then this weekend, uh, Alex Stadler, who's an artist, organized an art, artistic approach to grieving where he has uh, commissioned artists to create all these pieces, which will be in a, a procession, which we're doing 345 on Saturday. And in the procession, we'll remember all these names. And I know that I've gone on for a long time now, but I'll say that for me, it's not just about HIV. It's about COVID. It's about deaths from gunshots. It's about cancer. It's about suicide. Like we have so much grieving to do in our communities right now. You know, when I read these gunshot deaths, I cry and I'm not a crier. I'm so heartbroken, you know, and I'm heart, I'm heartbroken for the perpetrators. I'm heartbroken for everyone involved. And, but then there's another one. And so there's like the South street thing. I'm like that kid from Gerard college. Oh my God. Heartbreaking. And then there's this kid from 15th and pine. I'm heartbroken by his story. It reminds me of AIDS. Cause like, you just have to move on to the next one, but I don't want to forget the guy from South street. And, you know, I don't want to forget the kids in all these neighborhoods who've been shot or the kids at Kensington and Allegheny who are suffering addiction and, you know, just are very vulnerable. So to me, the, the ritual on Saturday is a chance for everyone, whatever your grieving is, and we all got to have some of it right now, to come and bring the names that matter to you and you know, add them to our ancestor database so that we make sure that if nothing else, we have their name. But I hope that we'll collect some of the stories too. And then on World AIDS Day uh, next December, we're going to bring our online database with all the information that we've collected, um, including the names that arise from, from Saturday. So Thanks for listening to my long. <laughs> it sounds like a, a lot of work has been put into this years and, and a lot of people have had their hands in it. Can you give us an idea and understanding of who's been working on this project and for how long? Yeah. So, well, I, I think that all the folks involved in the remembrance project are lifers. So, you know, Wahida Shabazz L is one of the international leaders uh, particularly women living with HIV, but the broader uh, movement of long-term survivors of HIV, people who've been resilient and, you know, showed up as activists and trained a whole new generation of leaders. So that's Wahida, uh, incredible person. And Jeffrey Haskins, who was a pastor in the Unity Fellowship Church, is now retired, but an incredible Black A leader and a playwright and, a, and an actor, you know, the, the sort of all of the intersections of the lives these people have lived. And then um, Ayn Gordon, who, in addition to writing the play, uh, These Don't Easily Scatter, which is the play about all these losses. He also wrote a play about the psychiatrist who sort of confronted the APA's pathologization of homosexuality. So he's written a number of plays about history, you know, based on, you know, documented experience. So he took all those interviews and created these three characters and wrote a beautiful play. And then I'm a lifer, like I was an act up Philly from my early 20s and you know, my whole life has been committed. In particular, I think if I were to say the one thing that really inspires me is like the history of queer communities in Philadelphia, which is a re really rich story, and particularly the queer stories that don't get told. 
the black queer stories, the Muslim queer stories, the women's queer stories, and so the trans queer stories. So for me, uh, I know I, I'm just a huge Philadelphia booster and so much of, of queer activism started and was cultivated here, whether it was the first demonstrations in front of Independence Hall or Act Up Philly, which in my opinion was the most and continues to be the most vibrant Act Up chapter in the nation. And so I'm just really intent that in my lifetime, however long that is, I'll tell as many of these stories as possible. And it's felt incredibly satisfying. I've often described like being at home, working on the skate history wiki and documenting all these people's lives. At the end of the night, I felt like they were all in the room with me. Like <laughs> the, the spirits were in the room with me and I'd be like, all right, you all need to leave. I got to go to bed now. And your uh, Whoopi Goldberg moment. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and, and then they're just the people that we met along the way, like Kathy Desmond, the social worker, or Ron Pizzelli, or, um, you know, Reverend Roger Broadley, who sometimes would do two funerals and a wedding in the same weekend. Like, I just can't imagine how you maintain yourself spiritually when you have to juxtapose grief and joy alongside of each other, you know, and still show up and, you know, show up for your community in these powerful ways. But a lot of people did it. And, and we were very thoughtful, I think, to make sure that as much as possible that we had voices of all the diversity of people who died. So really celebrating trans lives who often went under the radar screen because there was so much transphobia alongside the HIV phobia. And so that's part of the network. Like you, you create not only this network of ancestors, but this network of elders who, you know, who, who are connected in one way or the, or the other to the ancestors. And I'll just speak from my own experience that some of my ancestors who died, like Yoshi Kuramiya, who was an incredible Asian gay man, like he defined intersectional. He was involved in every activist movement uh, or Dominic Bash who confronted the Catholic church and in Philadelphia. And he confronted this nun and said, you guys are horrible on the gays. You need to do something about it. And this nun went on to form this organization called new world ministries that has convinced the Pope to be more moderate on gay issues. Like Dominic inspired this nun to do this thing. And so I just believe that people really can make a difference. And, but it's in some ways you lose out on the possibility for activist growth. If you don't trace the stories back, including to all these people who have passed and continue to play an ancestral role. And so if a young black gay fashion designer does not know who Willie Smith was and the incredible clothes that he created um, and that he died of AIDS and, you know, and that, that that was part of his story. Like it doesn't create the possibility for a young black uh, fashion designer to live in his full gayness and, and understand this trauma that the community went through and, and frankly continues to go through because not everyone can afford the HIV medications. People are still dying. There's whole new generations of sexually active people of all sexual orientations and gender identities who are at risk for HIV. And we still have a lot more work to do. So if that's another piece of remembrance is to say, Let's remember what happened. Let's remember the trauma and, if possible, not repeat it. Mm. I, I, I am reflecting on what you said earlier. You were talking about the fact that um, when you're in a crisis, whether it's the gun crisis or COVID or HIV, there you're dealing with so much death that you really don't have time to grieve. And grieving is part of the process of healing. Uh, healing is part of a process of understanding. So if we don't stop for a second or for a little bit, even if it's years later, to acknowledge these people and these souls and these stories, then it's almost like you're you're held back and we can't really move forward. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, and when you think of what it means to move forward at, at such a challenging time in Philadelphia's history, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a really hopeful, optimistic person. And so I see a path for Philadelphia. I, I love our city. I, I see a path for it to become even greater. But I think part of it is for us just to take a moment to do an inventory on gun violence and an inventory on COVID and an inventory on cancer, which, you know, decimating so many women's and men's lives. And a lot of times we just don't get to sit back and say, you know, what have we lost? And, you know, I'll, I'll just say even for you guys, like when I did the Gay History Weekly, there's a lot of people in the, in, in the media world, both TV and radio, who died and you know, who were well-known figures in the 70s and 80s. But probably no one knows who they are now or maybe a few people do. Um, and so like in every world that exists. And and I feel like oftentimes it's queer people just out of the courage it takes to be queer growing up they're risk takers. Like, and so a lot of times that will manifest itself in their careers and in their personal lives. And so, you know, they did great things in all this risk taking. And I want to go back and look and say, who were they? And uh, so when I talk about Willie Smith or Kiyoshi Kurumiya, uh, a number of city council people, John Anderson, who we named the, was a black gay uh, city councilman. We named the, the senior housing on 13th street after him. Uh, was one of the first people to die of AIDS in the city. And from this incredible uh, West Philly Black political family, the Andersons, you know, had huge influence in West Philly politics. And so there's a community center named after Anderson. We have the senior center named after him. But I also want people to know the story of his life. Like he was a really courageous city councilman who fought for, you know, working people and for communities who didn't have a voice. And so it's important for us to remember as many of those stories as possible. Thank you so much. We know that Philadelphia was uniquely and powerfully hit by HIV and AIDS. And this is such a wonderful way to remember those loss. Thank you for doing all that you're doing. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. With pride comes celebration and standing, living, and even dancing in your truth. Sharaday Howard has a chat with C. Brenda Lamore, Philly's legendary drag and ballroom queen. This week as Pride Month winds down, our eyes are on Philly drag legend Brenda J. Lamore, who began her career in drag more than three decades ago. And since then, she's mentored countless LGBTQ youth on the importance of art and expression, but also advocacy within the communities. She says, without direction, everything just turns upside down. And she's always just wanted kids to simply look up and be the change they fight for. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Brenda. You're welcome. Thank you. You're a mentor at your core, but it's no accident that you found drag through your own mentors. Me finding drag came about in the late 80s, uh, hanging out in Center City, watching people like Les Harrison and Mabel Redtop and Tinsel Garland, Faressa the Electric Woman, Joanna Daniels, just to name a few. They have been doing a show at 
what's called U-Bar now, which back then to us was called Uncles. And I started watching all these entertainers being mesmerized. They were able to look like a certain character. The dare came probably 88, 89 when Sean Devereaux says to me, I can put you in drag. All you got to do is shave your mustache and everything off and come to my house and I can help you. So between maybe three people, they got me together. And I went out very timid, very shy, very quiet, didn't speak much. It was an itch that I needed to scratch at that time. I went back again. They said, okay, first few times are free. The next few times you're going to have to start walking around the bar. And now you got to go on stage. And so I went on stage and they took me to the cartwheel and Gatsby's in New Jersey. The cartwheel and um, the prelude, the Raven were like the testing grounds in New Hope for budding performers. 12th Air, Bob and Barbara's, which is you know, a straight bar and filling were the other testing grounds for me. And then all these other little places started popping up one time drag shows. I stayed between Philly, New Hope and Gatsby's in New Jersey. So that became the, the start of Miss Brenda. But what about Miss Lamore? Brenda Lamore didn't kick in until the 90s when Andrea Lamore decided, you know, all these people, other people have houses. I want to have a house and have some kids and, and performers in it. And as one of the early Attic Youth, we had the pleasure of having you, Brenda J. Lamore, as one of our mentors. And you were very open about drag and what that meant to you, as well as advocacy. And now to see that all of you now are grown and have your own professions... Makes my old heart feel good. We'll put it that way. Well, we all really looked up to you. You were one of our main mentors. You didn't hold any punches because Philly had its own culture. And it really was one of these places where if you were an LGBTQ person, you could express yourself and drag. You could express yourself in the ballroom. You could express yourself in so many ways. It was a necessary outlet. How did Philly really play a part in your development in the art of drag? I was a very different person then. I had struggled with being homeless. I had struggled with addiction. I was very guarded to some, but like you said to the kids to, at the attic, I was very open because I wanted them to learn from my experiences and, and grow from them. You weren't just opening your drag, you were also opening your advocacy. You made it really clear that we had a job to pay it forward. When I came out, there was no attic. There wasn't really nothing for gay youth. There was a gay youth group back in the day called the Philadelphia Gay Youth Group that started at the Penguin Place on Kamak Street. And a lot of those adults there instilled in me, besides the people I was performing with and around, instilled in me that you as a young person need to educate those who are going to come behind you. I So I felt it was my obligation to teach you all, if you got a mouth, open it, use it, show people that this is not what gay people are all about. They have a lot of misconceptions about gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transgendered, queer. So through our art forms and through communication and education, we really were our own best advocates. And you made that very clear that we can use our art form to change minds. My generation, um, we didn't even have the ball culture, the ballroom culture. It was very underground at that point. And like I said, it was just at that point, you were either one of three things. You were either gay, lesbian, or bisexual. There was no, or even queer, but there was no 
And so there was the, the art world of drag. There was the ballroom culture. There was just the club culture in general. And you did all of this when people weren't kind. This wasn't easy. But you were all about be you, boo. Be your truest self. Okay. So I remember stories from Mama Les Harrison back in the 60s, 50s, and, and even some of the 70s. She was saying that they had to sneak into places in the back door to get ready and then go on stage and then take it all off and you go back into the world like nothing happened. And people went through all these struggles because they needed these artistic outlets. It was a way of releasing all of the tension from social oppression, from sometimes pain comes a beautiful art. Speaking of ballroom, Ballroom back in the 80s was just kind of coming above ground a little bit here in Philly. But a lot of it was because everybody thought, oh boy, they saw Madonna and they thought, they thought she made up voguing. This was her thing. But no, that came from urban youth. New York, Paris is burning, 1988, 1989, you know, she didn't make that up. I hate that when I hear Madonna created the Vogue trend. No, she did not. She publicized it and she got paid a lot of money off of that. So I'm glad that when the movie Paris is Burning finally came out, everybody got to see, oh, wait, Madonna didn't do this. I'm not a part of it, but from what I remember, even on the streets of Philly, a lot of I just had this conversation with some people at uh, Union County College last year for their gay and lesbian pride. One of the questions was, did Madonna start the Vogue issue? And my answer to that was a flat out no. Do your homework. There were a lot of houses before then. Like I said, there was uh, the most famous House of Ninja, House of LaBeja, House of Revlon, House of Onyx, House of... You named it, there was a house for everything. And so a lot of these people in New York, um, Paris Dupree was one of them, who the movie is named after, went to other cities. And that's how the house culture, that was how it began for me, learning these people coming from New York or going to New York and seeing them, and they would branch out to other cities and have balls. And so... You're right. 1980, I think it was 8089 when Madonna came out with Vogue. It wasn't new, baby. It was new for the mainstream world, but it wasn't new for everybody who was gay and in the scene. These art forms even now are used to bridge communities. People who would never have known or seen these things are now active dancers in ballrooms who were not a part of the urban scene, but now have been exposed to it and exposed to the culture that created it. So in the drag world, we've had where Mikhail St. John, God rest her soul, who was a famous Pilot Bell impersonator, took a troop of us to Bodrum, Turkey. Now, you can't see this on the streets of Turkey. They're not having this. So, you know, you had to be in civilian clothes. And if we had makeup on, we had to be covered. And so um, that was one way that a lot of the drag carried on. You know, I, well, I knew back in the 80s when Willie Ninja went to like Tokyo and China, took the whole house of Ninja. And it was just he explains it in the movie Paris is Burning, where he just took them overseas and, and it just it created a phenomenon. As a mentor, what would you say to this next generation who's looking around and thinking, boy, I don't know. I don't know if I can really be who I am, what I am. Who am I to even try? That's the point. You just try it because you won't know. If I would have never known, if I had never tried. Mama Les had a saying, be nice to everybody, be kind. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know what their circumstances are. And we'll end on that. Thank you so much for joining us at Bridging Philly. Happy Pride. 
Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, as well as a new addition to Bridging Philly, Sabrina Boyd-Circa. I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. 